All right, good morning, Mercy Hill Church. Again, it's good to be with you. Uh, if we haven't met, my name is Brad. I'm one of the elders here. And I want to invite you to jump up off the couch and grab a Bible and turn to John chapter 6. John chapter 6. Uh, I mentioned earlier in the live stream that we hope to regather around July the 26th when the air conditioning is replaced in this building. And so we trust that you'll pray with us towards that date and we'll watch and see what takes place as we look forward to that and the time that we can be together again. I want to say thanks to Brad Strom, who did a great job leading us through the scriptures last week, and the team who's always here um, in the building, our volunteers on the AV team, and our band. So grateful to all of you. We were able to worship with you from the Gulf, from the Gulf Coast last week as we were a part of the live stream. And uh, last week, Brad spoke to some of the circumstances that are taking place in our world. Um, I shared a very short um, message regarding that two weeks ago, and I think it's very important that religious leaders all across our country um, provide leadership in times like this. And so next Sunday, uh, I will be preaching a message entitled, Would Jesus March? Would Jesus March? And I hope that that either makes you curious enough that you'll come back and listen, or maybe for some of you, angry enough, I don't know. But it's uh, the gospel speaks to the circumstances of our world more clearly than any other message. And it's very important that religious and spiritual leaders, and pastors in particular, would speak regarding um, the sin of racism and the circumstances that we see in our world today. So uh, I trust that you'll worship with us next week and, and pray that you would uh, be in prayer for me and our elders this next week as we talk about this most important issue that's facing our world. John chapter 6, today we're going to wrap up this long chapter, and as we prepare to, to wrap it up, I just want to take a moment and remind you how great the 80s were. I don't know if you grew up in the 80s like I did. I was a bicentennial baby, so I was born in 76, and I had the joy of growing up in the 80s, and the 80s were awesome. Uh, if you didn't grow up in the 80s, then you don't understand what real video games are like, because the 80s, uh, there was no Fortnite. And all these crazy games that my kids try to play and teach me how to play that are so complicated and rule your life. There was Pac-Man. And Pac-Man was all you needed because the Atari 2600 was the first real video game console. And uh, the 80s were so fun. We had the Rubik's Cube. I mean, what more? You had one, one little box that for the rest of your life, you could play with it and never figure out how it all came together. Um, unless you were like 1% of people um, in the world. The 80s were great. We had Ray-Ban sunglasses. We had big hair. I mean, if you... I don't have a lot of hair now, but in the 80s, we, we all had big hair. The 80s were so much fun. We would, um, we would take our pants and uh, we, would, uh, we would take them at the bottom and, and roll them up. And I mean, the 80s had such great fashion. But as you think about the 80s, some of y'all are laughing along with me because the 80s were pretty cheesy. But you can't think about the 80s and leave out Nancy Reagan. You, you say, what? If you don't understand Nancy Reagan, and the, then you weren't born in the 80s. Because all of us who were in school, we were met with this slogan during the 80s. And it went like this. Say no to drugs. 
say no to drugs. And it was this huge campaign. Uh, crack and cocaine were, were coming. They were on the rise. And it was this new drug that was taking over America. And all throughout the 80s, there was this huge campaign that met students in schools and it was just say no to drugs. And the crazy thing about this warning was that it seemed as if it actually worked, at least on some levels. I can remember graduating from high school in the mid-90s. And, and if, you were, if you were a druggie, you weren't cool. Because we grew up with this campaign. We all knew. I mean, the, the commercial was so clear in our minds where the man stood in the kitchen. I think it may have even been black and white. He stood there and he said, just in case you've missed it. And he picked up an egg and he said, this is your brain. And he had a, a frying pan that was sizzling hot and he cracked it in the frying pan. And as the egg fried, he said, this is your brain on drugs. Any questions? And that warning for us kids in the 80s seemed to actually work, at least on some levels. We heard the message and we heeded it. And all of John chapter 6 has been a message. It's been a warning to us that men and women will leave the faith. Men and women will leave the faith. And that's a very discouraging message. But in the end of this chapter, we find encouragement from the disciples. And it comes in this big idea. Life in this world is hard. So run to Jesus, our only hope. Life in this world is hard. So run to Jesus, our only hope. Let's pick up in the scriptures and we'll start in John in chapter 6 in verse 60. And we'll read through the end of the chapter. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where He was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray Him. And He said, This is why I told you that no one can come to Me unless it's granted Him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you? The twelve, and yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. The first truth that we see in this text is Jesus calls for total commitment from his disciples. The first truth that we see is that some disciples will walk away. Some disciples will walk away. Now, this is, this is a text that's a warning to us. We don't often hear warnings in the church today. Too often times, we're so busy trying to convince people that they can have their best life now. And this entire chapter uh, pushes back against that idea that the kingdom of God is not primarily concerned with, with the physical and with, with the fulfillment of all that God desires in the here and now. Jesus has been trying to take 
these thousands who have followed him and to point them not to their physical circumstances, but to allow their physical circumstances to point them to the spiritual realities of his kingdom. If you'll remember, in this long chapter, it's been like a big balloon that's been blowing up. And in these last 12 verses, all the air comes out. Jesus had fed 5,000. Now take a moment and try to grasp that. Put yourself in the FedEx Forum. If you've ever seen the Grizzlies play the L.A. Lakers, just sit there and imagine the crowds. You can see it. It's crowds full of, it's yellow all around. I know, I hate it too. And you're there, and it's shoulder to shoulder, even in the nosebleed, and everybody's waiting on LeBron to do his little baby powder routine there on the court. And it's so full, the escalators are full, the stairwells are full as you're leaving. You can't turn left or right because the crowds of people, that's the number of people, maybe even more than those who had packed the FedEx Forum for a Lakers game, who had come to see Jesus. And he's fed them all, he satisfied their stomachs, but they're still hungry They're hungry for something physical while he's trying to point them to something spiritual, which is his kingdom. They're ready to anoint him as king. And Jesus, if you remember, escaped into the mountains. Later that night, he walked on the water. He provided for the the disciples and their miraculous rescue from the Sea of Galilee. And now we pick up in verse 60. And the disciples respond and they say, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? What are they talking about? I'm talking about that passage that, that Brad Strom looked at last week as Jesus would use a metaphor to point to total commitment to say, if you really want to follow me, then you're going to have to eat my flesh and drink my blood as if to say that you're going to have to see the significance of my death on the cross. And the 20,000 who have followed Jesus across the Sea of Galilee and now to Capernaum, we see in this passage that now they're most likely as few as maybe just 12. Those who had left were fixated on a physical kingdom. And it's a warning to us. It's, they say this is a hard saying. It wasn't a hard saying to understand. It was a harsh saying. It was offensive to them. Because it didn't meet the reality of what they had hoped for. Which is that their physical circumstances would be changed. And it's a warning to each of us as Christians today that we would be so very careful that we wouldn't become fixated on a physical kingdom, on a particular moral agenda, or social agenda, or political agenda, so much so that it becomes the center of our lives, more center than that of Jesus. Jesus goes on in verse 62, and He says, do you take offense at At this, he's speaking of his earlier words. And then in verse 62, he says, Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? Somewhat of a confusing statement. Ascending to where he was before. Where was Jesus? He was at a place of glory before. He was with the Father in heaven. Whenever John spoke of ascending, he almost always spoke of Jesus ascending to the cross. And Jesus is making the point, it would seem in verse 62, that if you are offended by my statement, this metaphor, that total commitment looks like eating my flesh and drinking my blood, it looks like me offering myself on your behalf, is what Jesus was saying. Then you will be more offended 
when you see him ascend to the cross in glory as he follows in obedience to the Father. And Jesus is saying that you will be more offended because your physical circumstances, this earthly reality that you so desire for my kingdom uh, to take over, that earthly physical kingdom will not be revealed in the way that you had hoped for. Because Jesus is far more interested in our spiritual sanctification than he is in conforming to our ideas of what success looks like. In verse 62, Jesus says, you take offense at this, then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? The cross of Jesus Christ is offensive. Particularly to those who don't understand their need for forgiveness and their need for eternal life in Christ. But it's not only just offensive to those who don't yet believe in Jesus as the Son of God, it's also offensive to many in the church who would claim to be Christians. And I think this is a message that needs to be heard and needs to echo across what we would previously have called the religious south. Or previously we would have called it the the buckle of the Bible belt. All those terms no longer apply. And I'll tell you why. It's because for decades now within the church, we've preached a gospel of what many have described as easy believism, which would just describe that Jesus has come in order to rescue you from hell, and so that you pray a prayer and put your trust in Him, then continue to live your best life now. And Jesus is preaching against that, that that is not the gospel. This gospel that would attempt to separate salvation and discipleship is dangerous. A.W. Tozer would describe it decades ago in this way. In the New Testament, salvation and discipleship are so closely related as to be indivisible. They are not identical, but as with Siamese twins, they are joined by a tie which can be severed only at the price of death. Yet they are being severed in evangelical circles today. In the working creed of the average Christian salvation, it's held to be immediate and automatic, while discipleship is thought to be something optional, which the Christian may delay indefinitely or never accept at all. You say, what are the results of preaching a gospel in which we say, come to know Jesus and and be rescued from hell and then live your best life now? Well, we're seeing those results all across denominations of every evangelical creed. Statistics say that 88% of evangelical kids are leaving church shortly after they graduate from high school. 88%. 90% of 20 to 29 year olds in America have been reported to believe that they can have a good relationship with God without being involved in church. That they can love God while not loving his bride. It doesn't work. It doesn't work in the physical world and it doesn't work in the spiritual world. You come to me and you say, Brad, I really love you, man. I, I like hanging out with you. You're one of my favorite people, but man, your wife. I can't stand her. In fact, she's kind of ugly. Like, would that work in your world? In my world, you might end up with a fat lip. 
if you said that to me. That those two do not compute. And in the church, it is impossible that we would be followers of Jesus and that we would not seek to see His glory manifested through the church that He has called us to. The Spirit of God working through the church is the hope of the world. It's Jesus' one and only plan in order that the Gospel would go forth through broken vessels like you and me whom He has redeemed through His death on the cross. Today, the greatest challenge to the church in America, the greatest challenge to evangelicals is not persecution from the world. The greatest challenge to the church in America is seduction by the world. And oftentimes, through the easy believism that's taught within the church today. And ultimately, this is just a matter of lordship. That Jesus would say in Luke 9.23, and He said to all, if anyone would come after Me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow Me. Obedience to Jesus has never been easy. Following Jesus has always been costly, but it's worth it. In this message of total commitment, Jesus first we see that some disciples walk away. But secondly we, secondly, we see that some disciples walk away and never leave the church. And this is a message that we, within the religious South, especially need to hear. Look at verses 63 through 66. Jesus says, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray Him. And He said, This is why I told you that no one can come to Me unless it is granted Him by the Father. After this, many of His disciples turned back and no longer walked with Him. Some disciples walk away and never leave the church. Jesus made this interesting statement. He said in verse 63, it's the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. This was so tough for the Jewish religious leaders to hear. It's tough for people who were so focused on the law. Who were so focused on outward appearances and exterior judgment. And it's so tough for many religious people to hear today because Jesus brought an entirely new approach to God that was completely foreign to them. It could be described in this way, that there are three different paths by which people attempt to reach God. Some of you have heard me describe this before. I want to encourage you, as you share the gospel particularly in the religious South with those who believe that they are so familiar with this story, who don't really know the story, but have gotten just enough of the story that they've become inoculated by the story, that you would share this approach of three paths. I shared it with a friend just, uh, just the week before last. And his eyes just begin to light up as I shared it. As you think about the approaches to God, most people will begin with what I would describe as a religious approach to God, which would say this path of religion says, 
that if I keep all the laws, if I do everything that's asked of me, if I obey, then I will be accepted. And that is the path of religion. And that type of religion can be applied to a traditional denominational system. It can be applied to a social agenda. It can be applied to a political agenda or a a certain moral agenda in which particular laws are held up as those that that are more important. And that's the traditional way that many of us have been taught to come to God that that if we obey, then we'll be accepted. As people have heard that, either one of two things has taken place. Either they've, they've found a great deal of obedience, maybe more than the average person around them, and, and it's caused a certain amount of pride to well up within them. And they've become good at the religious game, and so they hold others accountable and even rise up at times in the ranks of the church. But all along, it's religion. Those who are the majority who seek after religion know that they, they, can't, they can't obey the law. They, they can't hold up to it, and so they swing the pendulum to the other side. They get sick of religion. They find no life and no hope in it, and so they seek out irreligion. And in the way of, in the path of irreligion, they'll come to a point in which they'll say, and and I talked with my friend just the week before last, and he said, I think I even remember saying that, that I am my own God. I will make a way to find happiness on my own terms. And it only takes just a few years or a few decades and These individuals find their life to be a mess. They find that there's no hope at all. And Jesus is teaching a third path. Not the path of religion. In which there's no hope because we're not good enough. Or we either find pride in ourselves, And not the path of irreligion. That says I'll be my own God. But Jesus is teaching a third path. The gospel. Which says all those who believe in Jesus. And his work on the cross are accepted, and they are forgiven. And because they are forgiven, they desire to obey. They desire to follow after Jesus as King. Jesus is describing a completely new way. And it was unthinkable to the Jewish religious leaders. It was unthinkable to those who had made religion all about a science of external activities and obeying the law, the law and rule keeping. And Christians, it's so easy for us to fall into this. I remember I grew up in a small Southern Baptist church and we had a tradition. Some of our traditions, if we are not careful, even though they are good traditions, they will lead us into rule keeping. I, I can remember... Every Sunday morning, we would have offering envelopes that we would keep at home. And in our particular tradition, we would take out those offering envelopes, and there was a series of boxes on the left. And you would check which of the boxes and indicate which activities uh, that you'd been successful in that week. So one was, did I read my Bible daily? One was, did I study my Sunday school lesson? Uh, A third was, uh, was I giving an offering that week? A fourth was, did I attend Sunday school? And a fifth, 
did I plan to attend the Sunday gathering worship service? And, and, and there was a, this certain feeling of I've accomplished something if I checked off all the boxes. I look back at that and the funny thing about it was I don't think anybody even counted the boxes. We just checked them because they were there and we turned them in. But how foolish of us to believe that we can somehow legislate a type of spirituality or faith by rule keeping. Surely something that was done in the beginning as a good idea can so easily lead to religion. Martin Luther was right when he said that religion is the default mode of the human heart. It's terribly difficult for us to accept grace. Instead, our natural desire is to attempt to earn salvation. To try to be good enough. And the difference is this. The difference is believing in our own good works, which is what the Jews were doing, and what comes so natural to us, or choosing to believe in Jesus' good work is the only good work that can save us, His work on the cross. And that's why we must come back to the Spirit. Thirdly, we see that as some disciples walk away, and some disciples would even walk away and never leave the church, that true disciples find life in Jesus and they remain. True disciples find life in Jesus and remain. Look at verses 67 through 69. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. I want you to notice what Peter didn't say. Peter didn't say, Ah, no problem, Lord. This discipleship thing's a walk in the park. No big deal. It's not what Peter said. Instead, he looked around and he found not the 20,000 people who had been with Jesus previously, but he found probably more like 12. Imagine that. Now, how would you respond if you were in Peter's shoes? Because Peter didn't make a decision that was based on earthly success, but instead he chose to follow the one who has the words of eternal life. And keep in mind, that's not just a quantity of life that's found in heaven, but that that is a quality of life as Jesus conforms us into His person and His character today as we follow after Him. I taught on this passage 12 years ago. And uh, I looked back at, at my notes this last week and I found found some words that I had written as I thought about this, this place that Peter found himself in. And it's really an interesting place because I think for most of us, we live life as if we believe that life is good. And if you, if you have some of those shirts that say life is good or the hats that say life is good, uh, nothing against that brand. I've got some of those as well. And, and there are times in which life is good. And we should be thankful for those. That's God's grace. It's His providence. But the truth is that life is hard. That this world is broken. 
that sin, and we see it all around us. We see it expressed in so many different ways. We see so many questions that, that people have as to what the answer is. And as we see this broken world that's around us, even within the church, we try to convince ourselves that we can live our best life now, that we can have it all. And the truth of the matter is that Jesus has said that life in this world will be very hard, particularly if you are his disciple, but that it will be worth it. And as I reflected on that, I wrote these words down 12 years ago. I said, there's a sense of mystery in Peter's words, a sense of helplessness, a sense of not having it all figured out. All he can rely upon is the evidence of the past that has caused an unusual burning in his heart that nothing else brings. Trust in God, continuing to follow Jesus, comes not through trying to work harder, to better ourselves, to become holier. That's called legalism. The default mode of our hearts. Instead, Trust in Jesus is actually built through continuing to surrender day by day to the uncertainty, to the disappointment, and to the ugly sinful desires that continue to rear their heads in our lives. Not pretending that they aren't there. Not not vowing to do better or punishing ourselves because we failed. But by acknowledging That we do fail. And that the acknowledgement of the failure. Is actually the ray of light. And hope that is streaming into our hearts. To awaken a dark and putrid organ. Weak from trying to overcome sin alone. Worn out from years of trying to hold it all together. As we lean into Jesus. Just like Peter did. Depending upon His strength, not our own. We wind up seeing our lives as saved. Through depending on His strength instead of our own. Through actually not figuring it out. And acknowledging and accepting our failures as sin. We continue down the journey of the saved soul. The soul that is being renewed in light of the love and acceptance that we find in Christ. Through His grace and mercy, we overflow with incredible, giggly joy and overwhelming forgiveness that enables us to breathe in the fresh air of eternal life. To begin to live a different sort of experience in this world. I concluded with this. Our lives become, little by little, characterized by the DNA of Jesus. As we follow, fail, acknowledge, fail again, and allow Him to pick us up. We begin to learn to walk. Not because we've grown stronger, but because the acknowledging of our weakness and being unable to do it on our own has given us a new source of life to draw from. Now we don't struggle with guilt, anxiety, and darkness nearly as often. Instead, we look to the light and we walk growing confident that in time, as we trust the one who is illuminating the path, 
we will learn a new sort of travel. Not a walk, not a run, but more of a wondrous skip in the dark that resembles foolishness and the height of joy and faith all at once. Otherwise known as walking by the Spirit. Maybe you hear this message this morning. And the warning to you is this. If you've never believed in Jesus Christ as the Son of God. And if you've never reconciled the fact that you are in need of a Savior. That you need one who would forgive you of your sins. And the call to you today is to heed what Paul wrote in Romans 10.13. Where he would say everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And to know that you can find life. And you can find hope. And that you can find satisfaction. Not in your circumstances. And not in what's earthly. But that you can find hope and forgiveness in Jesus. And peace in Him alone. Jesus' brother, John, would go on to write in 1 John 5, 11, and 12. He would put it so simply. He would say, God has given us eternal life. And this life is in His Son. Whoever has the Son has life. And whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Oh, that you would find life today. If you don't know Jesus, I, I would love to talk with you and share with you more. You can feel free to email me or, or call me. My information's on our website or any of our elders or, or other friends that you might know at Mercy Hill who could share with you how they have found life in Christ. And believers, today I want to challenge you with something really specific. We are living in a world today in which more than ever we are seeing that our circumstances cannot satisfy. And we find great hope and great encouragement in this passage because Peter gives this wonderful, somewhat at first kind of dark, but then hope-filled statement of, well, Jesus, where else could we turn? We've looked everywhere else, but Jesus, you alone have the words of eternal life. And we find encouragement in that statement because we know it to be true. It resonates within our heart, but all the while, we live with friends and family and loved ones who have divorced themselves from the church. Who have said that I will live my life apart from God. And they live with a hopelessness and a darkness. And my challenge to you today, Christian, is this. Consider those who don't know the hope of Jesus Christ. Think of one person right now that the Spirit might be just bringing to mind and putting on your heart. And commit today to begin to pray for them daily. Just to pray that they would know the hope of Jesus Christ. That they would find the joy that you find and the peace that you have in walking by the Spirit. In finding life in Christ. And knowing that He alone is your only hope. And that you would begin to pray for them daily. I believe that many Christians don't walk in the full joy that Jesus offers because we've been very selfish with our faith. We've taken the joy that Jesus has brought to us and we've bottled it up. And we've stored it up to wait for heaven. And the truth of the matter is that Jesus, through His Spirit, not through our work, but He wants to pop the cork on that bottle. And He wants the gospel to go forth through our relationships 
and through our mouths and through our actions. And we, through His Spirit, are the hope of the world. We are His plan A that He has established in order that the gospel would go forth. And I want to challenge you today that you would just begin to pray for one individual who doesn't know this hope. You would pray that they would come to know Jesus, that you would have opportunity to share with them. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this text. It's a hard text. It's a warning to us. But God, thank you for this warning that reminds us that there are no physical circumstances that can satisfy. That Jesus, you and you alone are the only one who brings life. And so Jesus, we pray for our friends and family who don't know this truth. God, we, there's a certain individual on my mind right now who I just had a conversation with two weeks ago who said, I believe in God. And then who went on to say, and I just see Jesus as a man. And who I challenge to say, you need to dig into Jesus. God, I pray for my friend that he would see Jesus as the Son of God. As the one who has given his life as a ransom for many. That he would believe. God, we pray that you would use us as your church. Particularly in this season. That you would use us to share your gospel, which is a gospel of hope. God, we find no hope in the church. We find no hope in our own works. We find our, no hope in the flesh. But God, our hope is in the gospel of Jesus Christ. God, we pray that you would point out the circumstances in our life. The physical realities that we have sought to bring us hope. And that God, that you would forgive us for those. And that God, in exchange, that we would put our hope in you. We would see that your kingdom is not of this world. And that God, that you would continue to conform us to the person and the character and the work of Jesus. By your spirit, it's through his name that we pray. Amen.